0: (laughs) Here's our intro.
1: You're listening to Deeper Magic.
0: This is the Deeper Magic. I'm Anna. This is my father, Peter. (laughs) It's late. I'm tired. And we've recorded this entire episode out of order. So my brain hurts. (laughs) I also have an exam tomorrow.
1: (laughs) There was so much drama in that opening. I love that you channeled it. I know people when I did the. I talk about the radio sometimes, Mm -hmm. but it was like you're such a diva, Capster. So you really channeled your inner diva on that one. Yep. Um, We're going to be talking with uh, Rabbi Alan Ullman in just a little bit as we sort of get oriented to the world of Genesis. We'll do a couple little, yeah, like brief, brief, brief word studies. But this will be an important starting point for where Deeper Magic is headed in some of the weeks ahead. Absolutely. But uh, just a few different little events in life. It sounds like you've had some classes uh, that were interesting to you. I know I've only got one more class that I'm teaching next week. Um, We're recording in early December. I'm teaching on December 6th, my last class, and I will have my first break from teaching in 20 years. So I will be- That's crazy. Yeah. I'll be off for about eight months after that uh, as part of a planned sabbatical and just very much looking forward to that heading to Scotland uh, right after- Class and uh, just wondering what sort of God is up to. So I haven't ever really truly done a, a full sabbatical of just creating space. I mean, I clearly have to keep working at the business and right. teaching. This is not just going to like, you know, sit on the couch and, and go, oh, and listen to what maybe God is <laughs> up to. I would
0: love to watch you try uh, to meditate.
1: There's no way. That would be there, so fun. There are many things that I will do in life. Meditation, I
0: just can't We should do. text Jamie about that because I'm sure she knows something about meditation. No, I, there's
1: no chance. I just, I last for literally Maybe six I'm gonna seconds text her right meditation. Yeah, on. you go ahead. Hang on. I I can't. I can't leave the space quiet for. And I'm sure that's you know people are, that are listening are saying yeah. So you have so many problems interpersonal, capsner, and 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 psychological that you can't be quiet for <laughs> six seconds at a time. But I've just never the whole meditation thing doesn't work. Now I will lay in bed at night though, and as I'm going to sleep, try to just create all kinds of space um, to talk back and forth with with me and God. And so I don't know what the sabbatical is going to be like because I will be doing other things um, as well. This is purely a very targeted sabbatical where I'm not going to be doing in-class classroom teaching right. for the first time in 20 years. Which is with, crazy. Yeah, and my job apparently is waiting for me when I get back next September. But I just am really kind of curious what that space is going to look like. So that's a little bit about the lead-in for me this week. But you've had some interesting stuff in class you've been kicking around.
0: Yeah, I mean, we just... <laughs> we had one of my favorite types of classes the other day where we didn't talk about anything that we were supposed to be talking about, putting us even further behind <laughs> than we already are. Is this were, class? Yeah, which oh, we're my gosh. so behind, yes. but it's it's fine. Um, because everything that we talk about is so, so important in that class. And so he he is so brilliant at being willing and able to talk about whatever his students need to talk about.
1: And this is our friend, Jim Bilby, who undoubtedly yeah. will join us at certain times. This is in the future. Who knows? He's, he's sure. a professor of systematic theology and ethics, Been a longtime family friend. And you just happen to have a chance to be yeah, in class with be them. be in and, his ethics and class. And it's, again, so odd for me because my last seminary class was his first class that he ever taught in seminary. Which is so funny. And now, yeah, and now you're in his class some 20 odd years later. So this is crazy. Anyway, yep. yeah, yes, he's great.
0: Um, but yeah, and so somebody, I don't even remember what the initial question was that prompted it. We basically went off on a big, long tangent about sin and the mindset of it. And I, I, oh, I remember why. It was, we were talking about some kind of ethical issue and we were wondering if you lived in a certain lifestyle for the entirety of your life, but you didn't consider it to be sinful, mm. does it count as living your whole life in sin? Wow, that's a great question. That was what we were talking about, and it was so interesting. And it, what Jim's answer was to that was he he gave the example of drinking beer, where
1: for (laughs) of course he
0: did (laughs) right because of course he did yes. Um, Where the idea is that for one person they do not believe that drinking beer is prohibited in the Bible. They don't think that it's wrong or a sin. For another person, they really, really strongly believe that drinking beer is a sin Mm -hmm, and that the Bible mm -hmm. says don't do it and like the whole thing. And so for the person who believes it is not a sin to drink beer, even if they're not supposed to drink beer, it might not necessarily be a sin for them to do that because it's not an intentional act of rebellion against God. And it's more about they they didn't know, like they genuinely didn't believe that this was a wrong thing for them mm-hmm. doing. And so it wasn't the heart action wasn't towards doing something wrong. But for the person who really strongly is, is certain of the fact that drinking beer is a sin, for that person to then turn around and drink beer would be a sin because in their mind and in their heart and in their soul, they are intentionally going against the word of God. Hmm. Right. And so it was, and so, and then the whole class kind of fell apart and everybody was like, but that's relativism. And he was like, no. <laughs> yeah. And I remembered that my parents are weird. And so I can wrap my head around that concept because we have been sitting in that for like a decade. <laughs> um, but most people don't know how to think that way. And Wait, so, did you just,
1: when you said my parents are weird, are you referencing me? And, I was mostly and, talking and your about mom, mom
0: but yeah. like... <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah yeah but it was just this your
1: thing. mom has the ability to live in tension and paradox
0: shockingly yes
1: i know yeah very much so okay um
0: and so it was just this like really interesting moment where we were like maybe maybe sin isn't so much about the action itself but about the heart behind it and then somebody was like well couldn't you then just say i don't believe this is a sin and then go about your day and we were like No, because unless you can convince yourself of that
1: in your soul but then you've deceived yourself i mean but we're talking about if you've never heard i mean i I, right if you've the the question is the right question
0: but also like
1: if you've never heard rooting for the green bay packers is a sin and you find yourself rooting for them you don't know any better
0: right and like and and my thing is is that it's like if you hmm, okay the way that i have thought about it is that like if you get to the gates of heaven okay and God is like, are you going to be a pirate? And you say no, but in your heart, you're like, but secretly, yes. I kind of have a feeling that God's going to be like, mm, I called BS on that. <laughs> right? Like I that, yeah. was, that was the question of the class. I was like, well, then couldn't you just decide that something isn't a sin and go about your day? And I'm like, no, because if you don't actually believe it intrinsically in you— then you just are doing something wrong and you know it, and yeah. outwardly you're saying that you aren't.
1: Well, it, it does speak to sort of the philosophical idea that we know things through contrast. Yeah. And, and so if you know what something is that you're not supposed to do, it, then you actually have to deceive yourself to get to the point of saying exactly. that it's actually not a sin. And so then you're living in sin. But if you've never been exposed to the idea, and there's some pretty interesting passages of Scripture that would be worth referencing that I've actually wondered about Paul talks about it in the book of Romans a little bit is he talks about before there was law is this
0: one of the Romans road passages no this
1: is not (laughs) well then we
0: can't talk about it well
1: I know we'll just we'll do some of the lesser inspired ones now oh okay Um, but some of the lesser inspired
0: more uh, Paul yeah
1: (laughs) but Paul only kind of meant these ones right Um, when he was talking a little bit about before the time of Moses sin didn't reign sort of in the same kind of way because he Mm. talks about that once there was law then sin Sin had the ability to reign because people knew better somehow,
2: oh, and and so now, and here's
1: what I'm going to say is I have not studied that passage well enough. Oh, that's to, to other, other than that, I just read it not too long ago. Going. Now what in the world does that mean where something about the nature and the power of sin shifted once there was law in the world as well. And it didn't mean that there wasn't sin in the world because the, the Bible no, does talk about pretty Moses that there is, but but something fundamentally shifted once there was law. And this is where I have Because then they
0: actively know mm-hmm. that what they're doing is wrong.
1: At least among the um, the chosen people that got it called out at that time yeah. that, that had the law, something different was afoot as a result of that related then to sin. So I think um, our good friend, Jim, and in that conversation you had in class probably yeah. has some interesting intuitions about all these things.
0: Yeah. And and the thing that he said that I thought was just like the most important piece out of all of that by a long shot is that even if a way that you were living your life for your whole life was a sin, and it's not a good thing, even if your heart's intention was good and like all of the things, right, is the what the question really boils down to is that when you find out that what you have been doing goes against God and his will. Are you going to lay it down on the altar or are you going to hold on to it? And that's the thing is because it's like, we don't really know what's right and wrong. We're just doing our best to figure it out. Yeah. Kind of as we go along and through God and through the scripture and through each other and through laws and whatever, we're trying to figure it out. But what the real question is, if you are confronted by God and he's like, guess what? You were wrong. Are you going to be like, okay, then I'm done doing whatever I'm doing or or are you going to hold on to that and say this is more important to me? Because my understanding of God is that if you had lived your whole life a certain way mm-hmm. and he was like, guess what? That's wrong. And you were like, oh, shoot, and laid it down on the altar, that God would be like, okay, and now you get to start over yeah. kind of thing. Right. Or like not that he would be like, sorry, too bad. You had enough chances. like. That's not who I understand God to be at all.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that gets us into our, our at least where we're headed in this specific conversation today, because mm-hmm. you've talked a lot. We've actually both talked a lot in past episodes about God's gracious character and that God's primary posture towards us is one of love and grace yeah. and
0: and relationship, and these,
1: right? And and I think sometimes there can be. The objection uh, from some people who maybe grew up in the mindset and and the belief that we're sinners in the hands of this perpetually tyrannical, angry God, right? Like that's the picture of God. And just because we get exposed to an idea first doesn't make it right or wrong. It just means what Mm -hmm. we get exposed to first. And I think many Christians got exposed to an idea of God as this majorly angry God, and you have been trying to suggest over and over again, and I think rightly so, that that picture of God is not actually the biblical picture of God. It was somebody's weird interpretation of some things in scripture, but God is actually amazingly gracious. That's a question that I
0: love asking theologians is like, why why do we put so much weight on this when it was just some dude?
1: Yeah, I know, I know. Like,
0: that's my favorite, like... Yes, I know. (laughs) It's my favorite question to ask theologians. I'm like, yeah, so like John Calvin, like... A dude. Right. Why do we, why?
1: Well, and, and and dudes and dudettes, I think, can sometimes be terribly helpful. For sure. But my gosh, we find ourselves being more follower of a dude or dudette than we mm-hmm. do, you know, actually I of Jesus.
0: I asked that question. I mean, I asked it first of Jim, and then I asked it of you the other day, where I asked that about Paul. I was like, why?
1: Yeah, that's a great why question. Why Paul?
0: Like, was Paul just a dude? And and we talked about it a lot, and, and it was just this, I had heard the stuff about, like, his revelation and and whatever obviously but right hadn't understood that it was taken with the same weight as the rest of scripture right kind of thing like i was kind of like why why are we taking some letters that he wrote to some people about some stuff that they shouldn't be doing as like authoritative yeah 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 because i was like I, I just don't get it and like some of your answers about that were really really good
1: yeah, well, it's it's just helpful to study how Scripture got compiled and why, and why do we end yeah. up with the, with the letters and the and the narratives and the stories that we do today because they do have a, a sense of, I think, authoritative reliability to them. Mm-hmm. Now, again,
0: because I didn't walk away from that going like I'm not at all saying that Paul isn't authoritative. I just no, you're was just like, like, what's going on? Why?
1: Yeah, what, what's the basis of all of that? Yeah, like and what's then, the
0: basis of that authority?
1: Yeah, and and I think then people also bristle. By saying, well, but Paul said this, that can't possibly be authoritative or whatever it is. And then you just have to go back and say, oh, it's probably a profound misunderstanding of Paul. Like there just isn't anything that I've ever read that maybe at first blush feels like, whoa, wait a second. We need to entirely reject that idea.
0: If I can get just deeply confused about a text that my best friend of 18 years sent me five minutes ago. Yeah. How how confused could we possibly uh, get about Paul? All the time.
1: And so uh, a given interpretation of any part of scripture may or may not be authoritative, but that doesn't yeah. mean that then we, when we too easily say our current interpretation is also in a one-to-one relationship with scripture, therefore we're going to reject scripture. Maybe we need to go look at our interpretation a little bit. And that's part of what we're going to do today where I think we're setting the foundation for Genesis today. That's going to allow us to then ultimately um, have all kinds of beautiful conversations about this gracious and loving God. But I think it starts with maybe having a different understanding of why Genesis is. So can I start with a story about my department chair?
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: So I think I told you the story, Anna, about, it was maybe my first year teaching at a place called Bethel University Oh, I was yeah. It's my where, it's favorite where you, place it's on earth. It's where you're attending right now, which is so fun to have I you there. I can't
0: wait to go back tomorrow.
1: Oh gosh. my first, my first exposure to Bethel University actually was as a ten year old basketball camp player in 1980. Seriously? That was the first. It was my first night ever, actually, away from my parents too. So I cried and cried and cried. <laughs> I called home that first night. I was like, I cannot do it. But uh, but then no, it was, it was a great experience, and, and so Bethel has been part of my life for a long time, mm-hmm. and it was a little maybe weird, surreal, I suppose, when I taught my first class there in 2004, it was an introduction to the Bible class. Yeah. I hardly knew anything about.
0: I took that class there. It was, <laughs> Not for I have me. strong feelings about Not that class.
1: And, and I didn't know for sure what I was doing. And so I found myself in this debate in, about the book of Genesis. That was a pretty common reba- uh, debate in in Protestant circles. People reading Genesis through the lens of assuming that what it's trying to teach us is all of the science behind which God created the world. And so it's it's sort of the scientific account and we have to take Galileo and, and the crowd that we've talked about in past weeks and apply it to, yeah. Life in Genesis. So there are all these theories about how old is Genesis and is it, or, or how old is the world based and on Genesis? And if you count
0: the number of years and the genealogies, then you know how old
1: the yes, earth is. Yes, for sure. That's
0: yeah. one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: and it's like, you know, 10,000 years old and, and you have to be a young yeah. earth creationist in order to, to believe that Genesis is true. And then other people say, but... It sure seems like science is revealing that the earth is a few billion years old. And so what did we do with that? And there's all of these theories and I was caught up in the middle of them. I didn't know how to handle it. So I went to my department chair.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, a guy by the name of Mike Holmes, just a really well-respected scholar, somebody that I was so grateful to have as a mentor along the way because he really is, he was widely considered to be maybe a top five New, New Testament scholar, but the way mm-hmm. he carried himself was as a person of just fun and humility. Yeah. and And you would never know the levels of of academic engagement that he had had over all these years. So I went to him and I said, Hey, Mike, what do you do with all of this stuff in Genesis? I'm completely lost. I don't know about age of the earth and days and light and all this stuff. And he looked at me, and this was either the first or the second time he said... Capsner, you're an idiot. <laughs> I think actually the first time- I feel
0: like that's something you probably hear a lot yeah, well, in your day-to-day life.
1: I do. I do. Well, and, I don't
0: hear that at all.
1: And the problem but. is it is is often it's, it's justified and in this case it was. It was also justified in the case when I was in the middle of my 300-page PhD dissertation. Mm. And I hadn't saved it anywhere. There was <gasps> no backup file Dad. anywhere. I know. On any computer. That's I so it. I seen, This is the reaction that he had. So the, I think that was, I think that actually was the second time when he said, Kapsner, you're an idiot. And because I told him I hadn't backed it up anywhere and I was nearly done with it. He literally marched me down to the Bethel bookstore and he bought me, I think it had to be a flash drive or something back then. And, something. and flash drives, you know, were like five pounds back then. They weren't all yeah. little, little micro SD cards. And he bought me, on the department account, he bought me a drive <laughs> and made me back it up on the spot.
0: That's terrifying. No, because, like, I, okay, for the podcast listeners, I write a lot. I enjoy it. It's fun. You do, and indeed. And I'm getting better at it, which is fun. But um, there was something, there was a project that I had been working on for months and months and months and months and had been developing in my head for, like, a long time before that. And I didn't back it up anywhere on Word and there was something that went wrong with my computer. (laughs) And it started doing this thing where every once in a while I would go to save my Word document and it would be like, nope. And it would just delete everything that I hadn't saved. So like from the last – I would write 20 pages, hit save, and it would be like, nope, and delete those 20 pages. Wow. And I was like, what? And so I fully stopped using Word for like a year and a half because I was so afraid of it. And now I have like – six copies of every story thing PTSD that I write. from that. And I copy paste it into Google Docs because that saves as you go. Yeah. And I'm like, absolutely not. I will not lose this again.
1: Well, see, you're smart now because I was definitely worthy of the idiot comment to have five years of 300 pages of, yeah. of unsaved That's
0: my thing is that mine wasn't even important. Well,
1: mine was saved, but only into one spot. So that was the second Very time fine. he called me an idiot. The first time he said, capsner an idiot is when I came on this creation debate. And, and yeah. this is what he said. And, and after this, we'll introduce our uh, esteemed guest, here in he's in lurking. just a moment, he's lurking in the background. But he said, uh, "Kapsner, when they wrote the scriptures, uh, the the people that wrote those early accounts were not interested in the question of the how of creation. They're they're interested in the question of the who and the why, basically, sort of who was behind it, why did it happen? Um, not interested in trying to give us some sort of scientific." account associated with it. There was a God at the center of creation Mm -hmm. that the early people uh, that that wrote this text were trying to tell us some things about God. And it really just changed my mindset that we're so often coming to Genesis asking the wrong questions, therefore getting the wrong impression. And therefore, I think for a lot of people, they just disregard Genesis as sort of this almost fairy tale-ish kind of story, as -hmm. opposed to the kind of story that is central to understanding anything else that comes from from that I just don't think you can understand any other part of scripture unless you understand what's going on in and how it's being started in one two three
0: I so, mean I don't have much to add to that
1: do you want to just you want to invite our guest in then
0: Alan say hi
1: Hello. So this is the, <laughs> this is Rabbi Alan Ullman, who um, we've leaned into a lot over the years as mm-hmm. somebody who who seems to have pretty good take on uh, on Genesis one two three. The kind of take that often Shockingly. blows uh, my mind. So Alan, thanks for taking some time with us tonight. I, Anna seems to think that um, "idiot" is a fair portrayal of that particular situation around the flash drive. Do you do you share that opinion?
2: Oh, this is way beyond my pay grade. I'm a simple person. (laughs) I was going to say, you're Um, talking to
0: us on a flip phone right now. Yeah, that's true.
2: That's really true.
1: Well, thanks for doing this. Um, It's just been fun to be friends over the years and and to study in a lot of different rooms and know that you have been teaching all these years. Was my department chair too far off in terms of how he described um, an approach to Genesis? Because I think for a lot of people that Anna and I run in circles with, That would be a little bit mind-blowing to think, wait a second, Genesis wasn't trying to teach us something scientifically about the world. There's something else going on there.
2: You know, there are so many different worldviews that have been pronounced as to being what Genesis is up to or not up to Mm -hmm. Um, in the last, uh, oh, I don't know, shall we say 2,700 years (laughs) that um, I think. To be honest, just to be personal, the way I approach it is I'm just trying to hear the voice in the text and what is the voice attempting to communicate. And from that, one can then sort of develop, abstract, contemplate what the text is concerned with communicating and what the text isn't concerned with communicating. And... To layer on um, a scientific worldview or a post-Renaissance, post-Enlightenment worldview, you could just pick so many different categories of things and then ask, is that really the topic? Is that even a concern? But one could say that about so many things. So it's just, I think, easier to start by listening to what the text says and then you can Decide for yourself what you think.
1: Hmm, that's super helpful. Do you, um, we, we talked about just having a, a series, just a quick look at some of the topics that we want to get into much more fully. And Anna and I will get into one of them more fully after our time with, with you. But there do, is it fair to say that there, as the text is try, as we're trying to hear what's in the text, that there are a lot of different sort of key words and concepts that are all woven together in the midst of the, the telling of the story?
2: Absolutely. I think, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, as you were speaking in the introduction that it's awful tough to discern what's going on in scripture if one doesn't have some sense of Genesis chapter one through three. And I would argue in a sense that Genesis chapter one through three is the the introductory paragraph of all of scripture. Hmm. Yeah. And if you really want to know what the rest of the text is addressing, it would be good to know the introductory paragraph. And I would say it's one of those fascinating phenomenon that somehow in everything we read, we know the opening paragraph mattering. And we would look at the opening paragraph carefully to understand what's going to go on in the rest of, whether it's an essay, an article, a book, a novel, it wouldn't matter what, but somehow we don't read scripture that way. And, and so learning how to read scripture that way would be, I would argue, one of the keys to the kingdom to starting to decode what is the text thinking about and what it isn't thinking about it, but also not just the question of what, but how it's going about thinking about things. Hmm and to me that's one of the the great challenges of simply reading scripture well to understand how it goes about presenting things so and the starting point is the key because that's what sets forth the trajectory so i i just couldn't agree with you more on this
0: yeah and i think one of the things that dad you and i talked about in an In the episode where we were talking about actually reading scripture and looking at the Hebrew and looking at the Greek and all of that is like one of the things that we talked about is that nine times out of ten when you look at a word, there is some layer of meaning to it that you're missing. And I feel like that's especially true in Genesis where it's like almost everything that is happening in Genesis is lost if you take the words in their English translation at face value and take them literally and just move on like it you you lose basically everything that's happening in Genesis.
1: Yeah, like I think light can be a good example of that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I think a lot of people are familiar with the passage let there be light and probably understandably just assume that the way God started in this creation activity um, was sort of to pull some sort of cosmic light chain so that God could better see what he was up to. And and maybe it doesn't mean it wasn't necessarily physical light, but Anna brings up a good example that light might have a lot more in it than just the idea of some sort of physical light switch.
0: Well, and the sun, moon, and stars aren't created until what, day four? Yeah.
1: So, yeah. I mean, right? It's it's Yeah, you would say more about it, Alan. It's it's interesting.
2: Yeah. um, I couldn't agree with you more. Could I somewhere else and then
1: get yeah. to lunch? Yeah, for Go sure. For yeah, that was just one example. But I think to Anna's point, right, that there's almost always something more going on than just some, you know, face value thing that we think we're reading.
2: So, uh, you know, I'll start at the very beginning. Uh, a very good place to start. <laughs> no. um, I love that. Movie. So the first, yeah, me treat. um the first letter of the first word is the letter bet. Yeah. And that, when it precedes a a word, means in. Mm -hmm. So, ergo, boreshit, which is the first word, is the b, and then reshit.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And reshit can be translated beginning, for sure, although it has the root rosh, which means head, H-E-A-D. So, you're already at something that Anna was talking about, but that letter bet, which means in. So if I want to say in biblical Hebrew or modern Hebrew for that matter, in the, the way you indicate the the is by a vowel under the letter bet, which is called a pata, and it's a flat-looking line Mm -hmm. under the letter. And so the B becomes ba, and it means in the. If you want to say in A, it's two horizontal dot, and then it becomes, uh, pardon me, vertical dot, and then it's not ba, but buh, and that means in A. But if you've ever seen the <laughs> Torah scroll, Uh-oh. you know that there are no vowels, hmm. meaning is it Ba Rashid in the beginning? Is it Ba Rashid in a beginning? And the answer would be plausibly yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting in a study with you at one point when we were going over this. And you were like, in the beginning, in a beginning, in beginning, in starting first. And I was like, I I just remember sitting there and feeling like that artistic moment in a movie where there's a character looking at themselves in the mirror and the mirror like breaks and then like falls apart. And I just remember my brain feeling like that and just sitting there and going, oh, I don't know anything. Yeah. I don't, uh, nothing. What? Because <laughs> it's because it's not like in the beginning. It's like just any in beginning. Number of things in beginning. It's like it's like once upon a time.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, so, so that to me is meant to uh, shape shift a certain hmm. response to a desire for certitude. Hmm. That's a great way. And, to And right? and so what. I would look for from myself and also others, but mainly from myself is if I'm saying I know with a kind of noun qualitative certainty, there are some things that are knowable for sure. But the text is actually not starting with that. It's starting with God knows, but we don't. Hmm. And how we inhabit our... Or to frame it in a slightly different way, our radical incompleteness. Meaning, I'm saying in a way, well, we're all vessels of clay. We're all finite beings. We aren't the infiniteness of the eternal God. And can we just accept that? Like, how did it all begin? Well, the text kind of isn't totally saying and giving some of it. And how I handle that is part of something that you'll be shooting through the text in so many different ways. For example, when the Israelites leave Egypt in Exodus 14, there's both an angel of the Lord leading them and a pillar of cloud. Yeah. But the moment you step into pillar of cloud and kind of think about what that is, you go, well, is it a pillar? Is it a cloud? How well do we handle... And it's not just a pillar of cloud, it's an angel of the Lord. But then suddenly you're in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and there's a time for every purpose under heaven. And there are people who for whom it's always a time for war, and there are people for whom it's always a time for peace. And how well we inhabit those paradoxes. Hmm.
1: Yeah. and I, I mean, you're barely... What I love about this is you're right in just the first three year, three words of an English translation that already now we see maybe something different afoot. But I think what you just said, Alan, about our posture related to our faith, I think maybe bears a little bit more conversation at this point, is that I think, understandably, people are looking to have some sort of measure of defined certainty about their life and about God and about faith that they can... Say or or categorize, um, you know, over a few sentences or something. Somehow to relieve the angst that I think all of us feel on some level, because life is just a wee bit uncertain. We don't know what the future holds. God really, you know, can't be controlled the way that we would like. All of that, and and maybe to to pull that all together into a question, or maybe something you can comment on a bit. I have thought a lot over the years, recently in particular, that if we try to find our Sense of firm-footedness or certainty in this world in what we can say is true about everything, even though there are things that are true, Mm -hmm. as opposed to resting in God's faithfulness and that God knows, as you said, and and resting in those places of trust in the midst of our uncertainty. We're kind of fighting a losing battle, aren't we? If we're always just looking for our own certainty with everything.
2: Uh, Well, yeah. And so that the text from my reading of that first letter starts with what I'll call paradox and mystery. Mm-hmm. And to me, a text of faith starting there makes perfect sense. Hmm. Yeah. Cause it's faith. And <laughs> yeah, right. So here it is. Can you step into the paradox and mystery of God's creation and know that it isn't to say that things aren't knowable and, For example, I actually want people who are building a bridge to build it to the highest (laughs) standards of mathematical (laughs) excellence. I really do. Yeah, Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, exactly. And I want them to know the tension and what the bridge can hold and what the limitations are. And yeah, and what happens when a certain type of storm and how the bridge will weather that and on and on and on. But it isn't that. Yeah. And, and to apply those rules to this or apply this rules to that. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think... Meaning,
2: I don't want mystery on the bridge. I'm <laughs> sorry, Ann. Yeah, no, 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 you're fine. <laughs> uh, and you're no, right, sure. I don't
0: want mystery on a bridge either. I fairly I <laughs> like bridges as oh, it is. I can't look, um, people are
1: like, look at the view, and I'm thinking, just get over I'm like, yeah, the bridge, don't get die. over the I've bridge. I've seen
0: too many movies where yeah, this goes too. wrong, yes. so please. Um. I mean, it's a little bit what, I said a second ago about once upon a time where it's like that opening phrase or that opening idea tells you so much about what you're about to start reading where it's like if I open a book and it starts with once upon a time, I know what kind of story I'm about to read or if it starts with like on a dark and stormy night, like I know what kind of story I'm about to read. And and literally the first phrase here is kind of paradoxical and mysterious and mm-hmm. unclear and it's like, so So that is setting up the foundation for the rest of everything that we're about to read.
1: Yeah, and as a lifelong student of scripture, Alan, how has that played itself out in your journey through scripture over these years? Like, because as, as a person who has what, you know, I, I'm sure you're like all the rest of us in, in terms of being made of clay and there's frailty and uncertainty and all of those things. But I don't think we should shy away from the idea that it is possible to grow in substance and in character and in faith as well. And and I think safe to say there's been a growing of faith in you over the years, even while you've stayed within the mystery of it. How, what does that journey look like? Because I think many people think that they have to know more and more and more and more in order to grow strong, strong, strong in their faith. But we're talking about almost an entirely different, and I think for many
2: people, an unfamiliar path. So I think... Many of us have had this experience, and I'll just pick one thing, but it could be so many different things in parenting. Um, you know, you guys have five amazing, amazing. Well, they're not really kids anymore. Uh, a number of them I thought are you were going to take
0: back the amazing thing, yeah, and I was, I was like, wow. I was okay. hoping,
2: Alan,
1: because I
0: mean, you know, everybody's
2: like, well, yeah, amazing, amazing. Anna, amazing. You know, so. I mean,
0: well, okay.
2: No, no, it's still amazing, amazing. Absolutely. Um, But you know how different each one of them is. Yeah. And you don't do the exact same thing for all five of them as Mm parents. I mean, you set some core standards, but you raise each one of them in a way somewhat differently. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't insist that everybody play the flute just because one of them likes to play the flute. Mm -hmm. That's just not what one would do. And I think one of the challenges is just figuring out how each kid learns and how each kid responds to whatever it is that is the constellation of their giftings and reality. What it means to be the firstborn is very different from what it means to be the fifthborn and on and on. And how many times has almost every parent I've ever met in a private conversation that I don't know exactly what to do in this particular context with this particular child.
1: Don't, don't mm-hmm. I mean, me right now, Alan. Don't, don't, don't <laughs> Sorry, me. sorry, Peter. Yeah, it's yeah, never, never for me, right.
0: Alan, we'll talk later. Yeah.
1: Okay.
0: I want to know where I was a proper yeah, child right, so that I can sure. keep doing it.
1: No, I'm loving so, yeah. this example, though. Yeah, keep going. It's great.
2: And how much faith does it really take in God to, uh, and to a lot of other uh, dimension? To raise a child well. Hmm. And how long did it take to understand that when our daughter Lara was facing certain <laughs> things, the best thing to do for her was to go out in nature. Whereas for Noah, our son, that wouldn't have been the thing I would recommend him to do. It, I mean, there's so much to be learned and there's so now grow and fade. Oh, something can happen. And the recommendation for Lara is get her out in nature and then let nature and her experience of nature affect her experience of whatever the challenge was that had caused me to recommend her to go out into nature. Hmm. So it's, it's learning how things all sort of fold together into each other. I'll give you... An example of something that I've been saying to people lately around a certain conversation. Um, people often ask, ask me for a variety of different reasons. And I suppose it just comes up in a lot of different conversations people have. Is this person an introvert or is this person an extrovert? And they usually don't realize that they have defined that word, those two words in relationship to people. What they mean is this person an introvert in relationship to people is this person an extrovert in relationship to people. But that's an astonishing, limiting, non-biblical perspective. Hmm. Because a person might be an intro, somewhat introverted in relationship to people, but they would be sort of like an, a huge puppy dog extrovert in relationship to science. Hmm. So there's somebody I know who, when he was released on the MIT Science Lab, was a total extrovert.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's interesting.
2: But we don't usually think about all the other categories. Mm -hmm. But when you think about the Garden of Eden, for example, in talking about the garden, it doesn't start with Adam in Genesis 2.8. It starts with the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, Hmm. in the East and place there the Adam who he had formed. And then suddenly in verse 9, we're not talking about Adam. We're talking about the ground, and we're talking about trees. And then a tree of knowledge of good and evil, and a tree of life. There's nothing about Adam in verse 9. Then in verse 10, we're suddenly talking about rivers. Again, we're not talking about Adam at all. And then we're learning in verses 11 through 14 a lot about the rivers. but Nothing. So from the very beginning, if you're reading scripture and you're only talking about humans and you're not talking about rivers and trees, you're missing a huge piece of the conversation. And then to just give you a sense of how this works in terms of seeing Genesis, early Genesis, here's the opening of Psalm 1. Happy is the man who has not followed in the counsel of the wicked, first one. Verse three, he is like what? Of all the possible permutations, a tree planted beside streams of water. Oh, wait. Whoever wrote Psalm one, probably David, but we don't know for sure, for sure, knows how Genesis chapter two, verses eight through 14 works. Yeah. And they played the man next to the tree and the, and likened the man to trees by river. Now, you could read that and come up with all kinds of incredible, beautiful interpretations, which aren't necessarily mistaken in any way, or you can see a huge trajectory that is being set in place in the text. And over and over again, when you're working through the text, oh, it's going to be about trees and rivers. And then not surprisingly, when the Israelites leave Egypt, the first thing they have to dance with is a tree by water hmm. in Exodus, you know, chapter 15, verses 22 20 through 27, the waters of Marah. And then when they get to the first oasis, oh, we're talking about trees and springs. Hmm. And are we just literally seeing, I'm not talking about any interpretive act. Are we just seeing, oh, there it was in Genesis 2, 8 through 14. There it is in Exodus uh, 15. And there, in twenty two to twenty six, there it is in Exodus fifteen, verse twenty seven, and we could be off and running. Mm,
1: I love that. That's crazy. And I just uh, and I know we were are just about out of time with you um, for this particular episode, and then Ann and I are going to do a little bit of that with with one of the words, um, mm-hmm. knowing that we have so many of those kind of hyperlinking. Practices to do through mm-hmm. the text, but we we did bring up light early on. Uh, can you just sort of do with what you did with 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 trees and rivers with light and just sort of hyperlink it to a few other places in the text as people kind of get oriented to how to under how to start seeing some of these sorts of patterns?
2: Sure, absolutely. So in Genesis day one, there is light yeah. and the light, fascinatingly enough, when God sees it though. So, God, verse 4, saw the light, that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. But just a simple, literal reading of the text, God is seeing the light in the darkness. Hmm. Because God saw the light was good, and then God separated the light from the darkness.
0: It's not that there was just darkness, and then God said, let there be light, and suddenly everything was bright. It was like there was an intermingling of hmm. the two.
2: That's it. Right, yeah. Exactly. Now, once one gets that, just what Anna just said, suddenly, okay, so that's light and darkness, or, and hosha, or is the word for light, and hosha is the word for darkness. We get to Exodus 10, 21 through 23, which is the ninth plague, and there is going to be darkness upon the whole land of Egypt, a darkness mm-hmm. that can be touched. Moses held out his arm, Exodus 10, verse 22, towards the sky, and thick darkness descended upon all the land of Egypt for three days. A man could not see his own brother, verse 23, and for three days no one could get up from where they were. Mm-hmm. But all the Israelites experienced light in their dwelling. Okay. Now, what's so fun here is between Genesis day one and Exodus 10, the two words or and hosha, light and darkness, are not used together. So this is the very next time they're used together. And as you look at the passage, there's darkness over the whole land of Egypt. Okay, so there's darkness covering because it descends upon the whole land of Egypt. And then we're told there's light in the Israelites' dwelling. Ah, but that tells us there is light in the darkness. Ah. So that tells us we're in day one. Because the light is
0: good and God divided the light from the darkness.
2: mm -hmm. Ah, and God is going to separate the light from the darkness, day one. Oh. But that's exactly what God is about to do. God is going to separate the light from the darkness in the ninth plague, meaning the Israelites are going to be taken out of Egypt, meaning, oh, now the light is in their dwellings. It doesn't say the light is in them yet. And that skews you to something huge, which is a big, big conversation, which is there is a state where we are coming into relationship with God where we are experiencing his light, but we're not, in fact, experiencing it emanating from us yet. Wow. And. <laughs> <we're>, <laughs>
0: <laughs> where he's holding us in that space, mm-hmm. in that light with him, but it's not, we're not the creators of that.
1: Like, it's not There's coming nothing, from yeah. us. So, yeah, same. That's interesting. Say yeah. more about that.
2: Yeah. Now, where all this is going in terms of trajectory is, of course, the book of Revelation, which closes with the unbelievably beautiful teaching that there is now by the end of book of Revelation, there is light, but there is no darkness. Mm -hmm. Ah. Mm -hmm. So that's where it's all going. And what does it mean to see the process unfolding, unfolding, unfolding and not to just read and to watch of how the text as a whole is moving. Hmm. Meaning we're not starting with only light. We're starting with darkness and then light in the darkness. And then we're still in day one, that God will draw the light out of the darkness. Oh, then we're in Exodus. There is light in the darkness. God will draw the light out of the darkness. Now, just real quick, the second day of creation, God separates the waters.
0: I don't believe you that this will be quick.
2: This
1: is great. I love where it's the pattern is going. He's already
2: quick. doing the separation. I'm pattern so excited that's I love we keep going. I love this. Yep. And then, of course, what's going to happen? Well, the, the waters will be separated in Exodus 14. And the Israelites will go through the parted waters. But it's the waters will be separated. And some of the language from the second day of creation is, of course, not surprisingly used in that passage in Exodus 14. Mm-hmm. So, suddenly we're seeing, oh, if we can understand the days of creation, we un- actually understand the, the path of God's salvation.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm.
1: And within each of those, I mean, you've only just given us a teeny teaser. I know that when we've studied, you know, when you lead studies in the past, and, and Alan, I confess. That the first time that I heard, compared to the sorts of Bible studies that I was a part of, which was basically sit down for twenty minutes in a room full of people with eleven predefined questions that then you've answered from the week before as you sort of hunted and searched your way through the mm-hmm. the word search that is the, the Bible, yep. I heard I heard about this person, Rabbi Alan Allman, uh, doing um, all day studies in which you would take one verse and stay in that verse for eight hours at a time, and I thought you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> There's no way that it works that way. But what you've just already done, kind of just set things up, knowing for weeks ahead and, and where we're kind of headed with, with some of our understanding of, of Scripture is anything that you just talked about right there really merits a day or two or four or 10 more days of, mm-hmm. of study around it.
2: Right. It's just so amazing how truly, infinitely, rich, dimensional, the text is, you know, well, of course, it's God's living word. I mean, you know, (laughs) of (laughs) course.
1: Well, we've kept you a long time for this one, but we appreciate you just sort of giving us at least a little orientation to um, to this, knowing that we're going to be doing a lot more of it in, in weeks to come, um, both as part of the podcast Anna and I are doing. We're talking about maybe doing some spinoff podcasts with you and mm-hmm. and some other voices for people that really want to to hear deeply on this too. But you're just the best. Thanks for, for taking some time
2: tonight. Oh, God. I just love you both so much and, and just so excited for what you're doing and how it will bless so many people. And yeah, it's just a joy and an honor. Thank mm. you.
1: I love it, Alan. Love to Melanie and the whole gang. It was good yeah, to talk to you. thank you.
2: Yep, talk to you We're soon. Right back there. you. incredibly sweet. Bye-bye for now, guy
0: Okay, I just... I i hate that every time that we talk to Alan about something, there's new things that I've never... Like, I think I've probably studied the first three verses of Genesis a dozen times, and I, and I have never heard any of what he just said before.
1: Yeah, I... I I'm with you on like, that. Yes.
0: <laughs> like, how many layers are there? <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, and I, I, I just to me it really is intriguing, and I think actually inviting to not have to be certain about all of these things yeah. to to also at the same time have a life of rigorous faith uh, of, of where you're growing and stuff. Where then. Like the exploration just becomes fun, and I don't have to be like, oh, I don't understand everything anymore. I must be a loser Christian. Yeah. It just is, no, this is fun. But I'll tell you what, I, like anybody else, I think for both of us, when you first get introduced to what was a little bit of a fire hose that we were drinking from with Alan right uh-huh. there. I, it's like, whoa, I've never thought about scripture this way. I, I guess I was an idiot thinking about the idea yeah. that really I'm worried about whether the earth was 10,000 years old or 2 billion and, and my Christianity depends on my answer. I'll tell you what, when I used to do radio work all the time, yeah, that was really sort of the litmus test of any conversation for some of the listeners oh, was really? what my response was. The Bible was either true or not true Mm. based on, uh, or I'm sorry, your your faith is either either... true or not true based on whether you thought it was 10,000 years old, a literal understanding of the days of creation. If you even suggested something different, you didn't have a true faith because you're suggesting the Bible then wasn't true. And I just thought, uh, it was such a hornet's nest. You can't imagine how many listener emails and texts and everything would come through on that specific question.
0: That's really, I mean... Mom and I were having a conversation the other day about the idea of something being real, but not true. True right. in the sense of it being factual, but, but real in the sense of it being true, if that makes sense, because that's like a, a weird thing.
1: Yes. I'm but following. in the
0: sense that I'm like, we we are talking about it because I'm reading Virginia Woolf right now and I just love everything. But she called it her fictional autobiography and it's called A Sketch of the Past. And the way, the reason why she calls it a fictional autobiography, even though it's about her life is that she's like, this is how I remember my life, which means that it may or may not be factual, but it is real because this is how I remember my life. And and regardless of whether or not this is factually what happened, this is what I remember and this is what shaped me into the person that I am today. So in a sense, it is true, even if it's not factual. And so I think that's how I tend to understand a lot of the scripture is I'm like, it is true and it is real, but it might not be factual.
1: Yeah, they weren't trying to write with specific facts. They're not associate. trying to build a bridge. Right, Right. that was such a good example. That was a that great really example. helped me when he said, yeah. you don't apply the principles of the bridge building to scripture and you don't apply the principles of scripture to bridge building.
0: No, of like, course not. He,
1: they're, they're two different things. It just, he has so many helpful ways of leading us into it. But I also understand that for many people, and again, I've said it, mm-hmm. but, but ourselves included, it it's taken me years to be able to understand sort of how he is understanding the scripture as somebody who has taught it his whole life and, and yeah. And it's steeped in it, but it actually becomes, it was some of the first times that scripture became really, really fun to read then. Like it didn't, it wasn't a chore. I used, oh gosh, I used to hate <laughs> the whole quiet time thing where I had yeah. to wait, you know, and I had to like do a quiet time. I was always with the book of Ephesians and I didn't know what to do, blah, blah, blah. And he just, the way he opens it up, I, you just end up hungering, I think, for more. Yeah. We know one thing we want to do with this, and that's what we've talked about. Now that people are sort of introduced to the world of Genesis, I know you specifically have said you wanted to do this work because so much of your rebuilding of faith, Mm -hmm. I mean, all the way back from episode one where you're like, I just can't do this version of institutional church anymore. We're not anti-church people in the least. We are people that for better or for worse are exploring different ways of organizing as the church besides just these kind of big gigantic weekend gatherings. And as you've been rebuilding faith in, in light of that, so many of these concepts of Genesis that then pull through all the way through, I know how important it is to you to be able to talk about those things in future podcasts, me and you, as then we relate it to life and to relationships and to yeah. how you understand yourself as a as a, as a 20, 21, 22-year-old, like all of those sorts of things.
0: Part of what I love about reading the Bible in this way and like even the idea that it starts with a paradox and a mystery is, is so brilliant because that has been all of my experience of God, like i I mean, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I love talking about theology. I think it's really interesting it it stretches my brain in a way that a lot of other things don't, but i I just so instinctually and deeply rebel against the idea that God is something that we can figure out and nail down like i I can't wrap my head around that, and I have such like i i weirdly. <laughs> paradoxically and mysteriously, have a way easier time with the idea of being like, oh, I have next to no idea what's going on, and I'm just following these little threads and these little patterns that I'm seeing over and over and over again, and trying to piece them together into some fragment of a tapestry of a god that exists outside of time and is... Like part of me and knows me and is in the world around me and but also isn't, but also was human but also wasn't, but also died and then was like, no, never mind and then like all all of these things like of course I'm not going to be able to wrap my head around that and the idea I think that's part of what I just struggle with so much in the institutional church is that they present God and the scripture as something that we can understand at face value that there's, like, three or four facts that we need to know, and then we're, like, all set for our life of Christianity. Right. And I'm, like, it is so much, like, it, it is so, so much more than that. And I feel like I I can and I will spend my entire life digging into this so intensely, and I'm, like, I will walk away with, if I'm lucky, like, 1% hmm.
1: of understanding of what's hmm. going on. Well, and, and the thing that's interesting about it too and, um, is that I, I was exposed to the idea of what was called in the Greek language the Rama of God or mm-hmm. because this, this scripture is living and active in the way that Alan talks about that this is God's breath that we are encountering when we, yeah. when we open it that this Rama of God idea if, if somebody has ever experienced this sort of sense where, where um, a faithful, humble pastor who's able to communicate well gives a, a sermon, maybe 25, 30 minutes, 35 minutes, whatever, yeah. on a specific passage of scripture. And it really does seem to be, then as faithful as we're able to articulate these things, faithful to it, um, that you, there's this dynamic that sometimes comes out of that service where if you talk to 10 different people who listen to the very same sermon
0: mm-hmm. on the very
1: same passage of scripture, yeah. all 10 of them came away with something entirely different that felt like they were almost cut to the quick. Or yeah. alternatively, because I'm like a thousand years old now, uh, I have run across the same passages of scripture multiple times at different times in my life. And every time I've read that passage of scripture, it yeah. has hit me in an entirely different way, even though it is the same passage. And and how I heard that articulated is sort of the, ra- the rhema or the movement or the dynamic movement of God was the rhema of God that... It moves and scripture is what it is, but we experience it and we live within it and it hits us differently in different ways. And so to just say, this is what scripture is, the way that I experienced it when I was 12, is that's a very valid experience. And it's equally valid, however different the experience might have been of the same passage when you're 32, just like it's valid to all 10 people coming out of the sermon, coming with very different realities in which God's a rhema moved in their life on the same passage. I, I think it's just yeah. fascinating. So this idea that I'm going to tease out four facts from scripture, like you said, and, mm-hmm. and call it a day, and now I'm good. Ugh, I just think we're missing out on so much.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's so interesting because like, yeah, like you said, every time I look at it, I see something completely different. And and I was even having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day where we, <laughs> we were talking about how few things drive both of us crazier than when you're having a conversation with somebody and they have decided that they are right and you are wrong and I'm just going <laughs> to keep saying the same thing until you agree that I'm right. And I'm like...
1: I could be guilty of that.
0: Oh, I. it just makes me so mad. Because I'm like, I don't care if we disagree. I don't care if we have different opinions. I don't care if you don't even really have an argument behind what you believe. Like, I would like you to, but I understand that sometimes people and and i myself do this have opinions or ideas or beliefs about something that is more emotional or instinctual instinctual and maybe doesn't have like a logical argument behind it sure but just the thing that just makes me so mad is when people are like and i'm right and you're not because you disagree with me and i'm like mm, hey <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and so he and i were sitting down and we were talking about Actually, some of what you and I have been talking about on the podcast. And he cause he's been listening and he was like, Yeah, I I disagree with some of the things that you guys have said. And I was like, Oh no, shock and horror, we can't be friends anymore. Yeah, right. No. I <laughs> I was like, Cool, okay, let's talk about it. And as we were talking about it, like he learned from it, I learned from it. Mm-hmm. It was like it was such a fun conversation that that we had. And we both kind of looked at each other and we were like, hmm, are we gonna go to class or are we gonna keep talking? But like it just having the openness to be like hmm maybe I don't know everything and and not only that but maybe a lot of my understanding that I have built a lot of my beliefs around maybe it wasn't that strong a foundation to begin with mm-hmm. and maybe I kind of need to start digging back through that mm-hmm. and and it's such a hard thing to do because like because he pointed out some stuff where I was like yeah no you're right and I was I was not Right about that. What's the thing? Is it from Megamind when he's like, "You were right, and I was less right."
1: Right, I love that.
0: I felt like that. I was like, "No, you're right, and I am less right." But it was like it was just such an interesting conversation, and and it was so fun. And I hope that this doesn't feel scary and and condemning, because I because I really did mean it when we were talking to Alan, and I was like, I felt. Everything kind of start to fall apart. It when we first studied Genesis and and he talked about in a beginning, in beginning, in the beginning, like all of that, and I was like, "Oh, I don't know anything." Yes, and it was like it was such a fun moment, but it was also just such a terrifying moment because I was like, "Cause every like if I don't even understand that, maybe I don't understand anything," Mm -hmm. and I I just hope that none of this feels scary I hope it feels invitational and and like an opportunity either either to learn and grow and and change and maybe recognize areas where where your ideas weren't what they should have been but also to build up the ideas that you already have like to because that is what I've found is through discussion like this and through openness like this is that sometimes I'm like ooh okay, I need to be done with that idea. And sometimes I'm like, no, I actually, this strengthened that idea for me.
1: Yeah. Well, you've said that so well. And it just is something that I don't think we can say enough. I know I need to be reminded of it all the time is that the heart of our faith journey is trust first and any understanding or lack thereof that might come from from our pursuit of god is my my theology prof in seminary once said that theology should be an act of worship it's not an act yeah. of like proof texting who god is it's an act of just getting up and genuinely pursuing god but you, when you when your head hits the pillow at night and your relief from anxiety is not because you know all of what is truth it is that you're in relationship with the one who is truth or is the source of truth or however you want to say it and so it invites this sort of place of trust i think people sometimes hear well if i can't know it all yeah. i'm going to be a left to a life of meaninglessness and relativism i'm not and, a
0: real christian yeah and, yeah and like
1: that's the alternative somehow is relativism or make it up as you go along or it's all meaningless if i can't know like i that's not the invitation. I, the invitation is to recognize it's just, it's, there's so much mystery in the midst of it. Yeah. And that we can grow as people of certainty while living in mystery all at the same time. And so I think there's, it's just such a. a, a and road. the
0: idea of living a life where you're constantly trying, like that's yeah. my thing, is that you don't have the certainty, you don't have that knowledge that you can be like yes here is here is my fact that i know and can prove to you but it's it's living a life of just perpetually being like i don't know yeah <laughs> but i am trying so hard and it's like that like that to me like that's the kind of life that i don't that i want to live that's the kind of god that i want to Follow not the God that I can be like. Here's four facts, and now I'm good to go about the rest of my
1: life. Right, and and I just think that certainty is that that idea that uh, God, at the risk of sounding trite, like right, I just never want to ever be trite, and especially Mm -hmm. with something as as I think significant as this, I would be deceiving myself if I said anything other than in moments all throughout, in little ways in my life, but in also in significant ways and at significant times in my life, that in some way, God's presence was there. Maybe I didn't even feel it. Maybe I didn't even know, like maybe whatever. And, there, and we go through long seasons of absence from God. We never want to idolize the sense that God is leading us, you know, right? Yeah. That it just can never be that either. But my certainty about God is that I just... I I don't think that I've ever felt totally abandoned in life. Like, let's just start there. I don't Hmm. think I've ever just felt totally abandoned and cast out, even when in God's absence and not sensing his presence and blah, blah, blah. And many times truly sensing his presence and almost like almost audibly, you know, and those sorts of things. But I don't think I've ever had a feeling where I could say, honestly, I've just been abandoned into nothingness. And, and I think with that is where then we find certainty that we're not going to be abandoned at the end of the day, even though we don't, maybe know everything. Yeah. And then from there, it's actually fun to kick all this stuff around because there are things to Absolutely. say. I mean, Alan said beautiful things about the scripture and about where we're headed and the final city in Revelation mm-hmm. where now they actually don't need sun, moon, and stars because the lamb is the light yeah. of the city and like all of that all ties together when, when you see that we were exiled from the tree of life at the end of Genesis 3 and then Revelation finishes with and now the way is open to the tree of life. Like all of those themes, yeah. we know some of this stuff. and Absolutely. I, one more piece of that. Again, we're gonna we'll will talk about these concepts all the time in light of life and faith and relationships and any number of topics here that you and I will keep doing uh, on Deeper Magic. What we're at least wondering about at this point, and I've referenced it a couple times, is the possibility of this sort of spinoff uh, that yeah. we'll probably do some pilot episodes of, hopefully, in the, in the first part of next year.
0: Hopefully yeah
1: with some people including Alan that for those people that really love the deep dives and would love to study yeah, trees that and can rivers be so important for like it, like it really is when we study with Alan, it's eight hours at a whack we don't have Absolutely. eight hours on deeper magic
0: We'll barely get through what somebody's name that, is totally. in like seven hours
1: that's totally it. but for people that want and and I want like you and I will probably if if we're able to do that, We'll probably participate in some of that podcast, but that's sort of our hope right now is that we can create another sort of satellite Deeper Magic podcast. uh, Still part of Deeper Magic, but where there's some deep dives into these things. I just want to sit in those rooms and and listen, um, even while you and I take some of these key concepts and and keep playing with them in light of just regular life.
0: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I don't have anything
1: else. it was fun to to have Alan today.
0: Yeah, it was really good.
1: Well, you want to sign us off?
0: I let us in.
1: <laughs> Fine. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm off to Scotland in a couple days. I know we talked about that at the beginning Jealous. of our episode, and so I'll be off in a couple I have of to days. Wait
0: a whole month.
1: Yeah, you do indeed. Uh, looking forward to the start of my sabbatical, and thanks for listening to Deeper Magic. I'm Peter. I'm Anna. We'll talk to you guys soon.
0: Bye, guys.
2: Super Magic is produced by Audio on the
0: Rocks and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there. All licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. Viewable on the site as well.